Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. We have a pretty packed episode this week. I was a little bit surprised because I wasn't sure a lot was going to hit news-wise this week, but we have the completion of the Julio Jones trade going to the Tennessee Titans. Uh, I wanted to go through a project that I had worked on where using different statistical techniques, I come up with quarterback rankings and projections for how well they'll do either on the basis of PFF grades or expected points added per play. And I'm going to go through how those rankings look after the 2020 season, some differences between where consensus may be MVP rankings uh, and odds are on players versus how my projections have them. And also a discussion about PFF grades versus looking looking at these advanced metrics like EPA per play, why there is a disconnect with some players and how to view that, interpret that, and, and try to come up with the best model there. Uh, I think we have a late cancellation. <laughs> Someone may get canceled today uh, based upon uh, some, some chum that was thrown in the water earlier today for the Sharks of running backs don't matter and analytics Twitter. Uh, I like this guy too, just like I like Dan Campbell, who I canceled before, but uh, we are going to have to go through and I'm going to make a decision whether or not uh, this article deserves cancellation and the topics on there deserve cancellation. And I'll I'll get to that. And then the last thing I'm going to go through is, I mean, fudging a little bit on the stick to sports. It will be a sports related thing, but it's looking at traits, how we view traits, how we view talent. Uh, I think very often we view talent as being this binary sort of thing or immutable traits like speed, quickness, things like that, or things that take a long time to adjust. But I want to also look at how we can view talent in the ways of, you know, guys who work hard, guys who put in full effort, uh, all the, all these sorts of things. I think we really look at those things and we say uh, they're very changeable based upon how we affect other how people affect each other, how motivation affects each other, it can change over time. So therefore it should be put into a different category. But the reality is it's much closer to being a set feature and trait of someone than we may think. And as part of doing that, I'm going to go into some research that's gone on with identical twins who are separated and things like that, just to show how strong the genetic aspect is of these things versus the effects of of surroundings, which I think we probably put too much of an emphasis on. So first let's jump into the Julio trade. Uh, so as we saw the news, he was gone to the Tennessee Titans. It's a second round pick. It's a swap of later picks. Also, as part of this, if you listen to this podcast and hopefully, you know, if, if you're if you're new, welcome. Or if you've just started in the last couple of episodes, uh, also welcome. But if you listen to this podcast two weeks ago, I discussed why the Julio trade was more likely to happen than some people thought, because at that point in time, there was still this thought that the Falcons were in quote unquote win down mode. Uh, the actions that they had taken over the off season, including restructuring Matt Ryan, uh, not drafting a quarterback at number four, drafting Kyle Pitts. Those moves hinted at the fact that they wanted to win now. And in that scenario, keeping Julio Jones would be the best way to maximize that win now window. Now, when you looked more into it, they really, we're almost forced to trade Julio. And I know there's been some discussion out there about whether or not Julio asked to be traded. And, you know, 
I, I, we weren't he hearing these rumors before when he supposedly was asking to be traded in March. So I'm not doubting that it happened. I don't think we're being lied to. I don't think this is a, like a conspiracy. But if it did happen or if it was a soft ask for a trade, I think it benefits everyone now, meaning it benefits Julio if he really wants a trade to happen. And it benefits the organization to play up that angle that Julio wants out because when Julio was first talked about being traded, Falcons fans who are still upset now, don't get me wrong, Falcons fans are still upset now, but Falcons fans before it was like, we need a first round pick or this is an insanity. And they were going to be very, very upset by whatever, what is a honestly a reasonable price, a trade compensation for a 32 year old of, Jul of Julio's caliber. Um, so I think that helped set the stage for making it a little bit more acceptable for, for fans. So I think the organization is, is going to do his best to play up, to play up that angle and did his best to play up that angle. And I think Julio himself, if he really wants to get out of town, uh, was doing the best to play up that angle. Um, so, so there's that. And there's also the fact that who is he going to go to? Now I discussed the different teams who I thought a couple of weeks ago he was going to go to. I was actually going to discuss two, but I forgot to discuss, to discuss the Washington football team there. But I did discuss my, the number one team, and that was the Tennessee Titans, primarily because of their depth chart uh, at the wide receiver position and also at tight end. You know, they, they lost Johnny Smith at tight end. They have Anthony Ferkser there, who's been good, but is not going to be a great player. And then you look at what they had at wide receiver. They brought in Josh Reynolds after losing Corey Davis, but they really did not have much at all there beyond A.J. Brown. And they really needed to solidify that up. And they were also a, con a contender. And I think a good way of looking at the real effect of this trade and a good way of trying to point to the win-win nature of this is to look at how this trade affected Super Bowl odds. Now, if we go back, there are a lot of different books, so I'm not going to say that these odds are exactly the same everywhere. But if you look at what's happened for, for the Super Bowl odds, for the Titans, I think in particular, it's interesting because you didn't know that they were going to get Julio, so there's less of it baked into the pre-trade odds for them. So they shifted, and I'm just going to use DraftKings here, uh, they shifted as a 40 to one odds to win the Super Bowl before the trade to 25 to one after. So that went from an implied odds of around two and a half percent to almost 4%. Now, I mean, it doesn't sound outstanding, but still gaining one and a half percent odds on an initial two and a half percent probability is a, that's a healthy gain. That's a healthy chunk. And if you look at what's happened to the Falcons on the flip side of things, they were, more in the range of, you know, 60 or 80 to one. And now they've gone at some books all the way down to hundred to one. Um, so that means they've gone from like two, less than 2%, you know, one and a quarter percent down to 1%. So it's a pretty tiny loss that they've had here. Some of that is the fact that it was already baked in that Julio is going to be gone. So that's part of it. Uh, some of it is also that they are just not the complete team. And they have a more difficult time in that division of coming out of there. So I think this was a trade where you see shifting Julio from one place to another, the team that gained Julio, the Titans got a much bigger proportional and absolute jump in Super Bowl win probability than what was taken away from the Falcons. So I think that's good. Um, I mean, the Falcons now, it's weird because I was a little bit positive on them, on them going into the season, but the Falcons now 
at least at some books, if they're 100 to one, they're at the same Super Bowl odds as the Bengals, Jets, Eagles. The only teams that are consistently below them as far as Super Bowl odds are the Jags, the Lions, and the Texans. So, you know, if you still have some faith in the Falcons, uh, 100 to one, 100 to one dart, you know, could be worse. <laughs> it could be a worse a, a risk reward bet that you, that you have there. At least you have everything baked in here. And I think that if you look at the Titans now, like I said, they went from 40 to one to 25 to one. So they have jumped into this upper middle tier of teams that could potentially win the Super Bowl now. I mean, you got, you got the big guns at the top, right? You got the Chiefs, the Bucks, the, the Rams, 49ers, Ravens, Bills, Browns, and Packers. Uh, the Packers odds have been weakened a bit by the Aaron Rodgers issues, but those are still the teams that are solidly in this first tier, right? Um, Chiefs, of course, and Bucks being separated from the others by a bit. But what you really have is this thick middle tier that now the Titans have jumped into, which also includes teams like the Colts, the Cowboys, the Seahawks, and others. So who are all around that 25 to 1. So I think the Titans have really put themselves into contention, not into top contention, but into decent contention. And you combine that with the fact that Tannehill's been a strong quarterback. They've brought in, you know, Bud Dupree and others. They're going to hope to clean up that defense. I think it definitely makes them interesting. And it also makes them interesting when it comes to winning the, the division where the Colts and the Titans were right up there um, with a pretty big gap going down to the Texas and the Jaguars. So now it's, it's leaning a little bit towards the Titans now, maybe to win that division. So I think, again, when, you, when, you, when it all gets put into play, the Falcons fell from long shot chance to win the Super Bowl to longer shot but not that big of a fall. The Titans really had a material move up into this middle, you know, not likely contender um, cohort, but a cohort where three, four weeks into the season, if you have a strong start to the season, they could jump up easily into um, the top six, seven teams in Super Bowl odds. And that's why they made that trade now. And that's why I think it was appropriate for them to go ahead and make that trade now. Okay, let's go to let's go to cancellation first. So some people may have seen this is being taped on Tuesday. It's released on Wednesday, but on Tuesday, uh, June 8th, we got some irresistible for analytics Twitter, some irresistible, like I said, some chum in the water that uh, the sharks are all after. And this was Rich Samini, who is a beat reporter for ESPN for the New York Jets. So, you know, Hats off to him having to, to be on that beat the, the last number of years. Um, part of this is, is the title function here and the way that the tweet was, was worded. So he sent out something earlier today where he said, can a highly successful scheme, and this is talking about the Shanahan you know, wide zone scheme that's being brought over by Mike LaFleur from San Francisco as their new OC, can that overcome the lack of a true RB1 question mark? Big question as a Zach Wilson era looms. Now, if you read the article, I'm going to give Rich some, you know, not, not going to give him credit, but I'm going to give him some context here. I mean, clearly the answer is no. Like you don't need a, a true running back one. It's absurd. Look at the... 49ers, look at the team that, that they came from, right? You have Raheem Mostert, you have 
Jeff Wilson over there. You have Tevin Coleman. You had Jarek McKinnon, who was barely making an appearance sometimes, uh, sometimes not. You know, you have a bunch of dudes who all combined to give a very, very strong running game. I mean, think about what they did in that Super Bowl run, especially against the Packers, where they were just handing off the ball, running over and over and over again, and they did not have a running back one. You don't need a running back one. The NFL has been moving away from a workhorse because the thought that you're giving away something in terms of signaling uh, by switching in and out running backs, like let's say the classic Patriots switch in and out of LeGarrette Blunt or um, James White. So the thought would be, well, if you have LeGarrette Blunt in there, you know you're going to run the ball. And if you have James White in there, you know you're going to pass the ball. But the reality is each one of those guys can function in the other aspect of the game well enough not well but well enough that the threat is still there you can't just ignore the possibility of a run with James White and you can't just ignore the possibility of a pass with a Garrett Blount in there so you're not really giving away that much and down in distance gives away a lot of what you're doing I mean especially third down when you're in third down teams are passing it as, as long as it's not third and two or third and one as long as you're third and three or longer teams are passing at 60 70 80 90 almost 100 percent of the time when you get far, far enough out on third down so having a pass back in there versus a workhorse running back doesn't matter like you, you, it does not matter at all because the team knows you're going to pass the ball anyway or is pretty highly certain you're going to pass the ball so you're not giving away a whole lot there so, of course, the answer is no to that, but the, the piece does go into some more questions that I wanted to look through because I think this is really the core foundation of what was going on here and some of the, the, the talk that we really don't need to be having anymore, but we still are having about success, offensive success, quarterback success, and running the ball. So if you look at, at the piece here, when you go into the actual article itself, it says um, they've had a vexing quarterback drought in New York. Occur. Of course, we know that. Now, it says they must learn to do this one thing exceptionally well, run the ball. And it points out the fact that during the Sam Darnold area, they ranked 30 in rushing offense, 30th in rushing offense. I assume that's total yards. Again, we, 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 you know, people listening to this, I'm sure we all know that the, it's a reverse correlation there. It's not you, you don't gain a bunch of yards and that's why you win and you're successful, but you're successful, you're leading, and then you run the ball to lower variance and to run out the clock. And that's why you get the rushing yard. So we all know that a bunch of things are presented on how few uh, yards that the different running backs that they have on the team, they just don't have a lot of career yardage versus someone like Derrick Henry. They're going to point out as, as another, as another guy. Um, and we go even further down. I just don't like how certain these claims are made. Again, you said they must learn to run the ball exceptionally well. If you go a little bit further down here, when they talk more about the scheme and how they're going to be productive, um, it talks about the type of backs you need where Tevin Coleman may be good there. But again, it ends here and it says that, that what you really, it's really just pointing to the fact that in order to have success, right, um, that they need to be able to be effective running the ball. So what, I, so what I thought about doing was, hmm, you know, let me test this out, especially for rookies. Let me try and test out to see how much running efficiency. And that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at efficiency. I'm not going to look at the number of rushing attempts here, although maybe that could be important, but I think you have to run the ball well to do well there. How much that efficiency really plays into rookie quarterback success. 
Um, so that, that, that's something I'll get to some numbers in a second. Another thing they say here is this is a very play action heavy scheme. So therefore what you have to do well is you have to run the ball well in order to utilize the play action and in order to bring that element out. Because if you don't have it, then then you're not going to be able to, you know, to, to use play action as well. Now we all know that that is not necessarily true either. The best article on that is our friend uh, Ben Baldwin at Ben B. Baldwin on Twitter. He had an article for Football Outsiders called Rushing Success in Play Action Football. And really any way you sliced it, you could not find a correlation between the success in play action. I think he was looking at yards per pass attempt there. The success in play action and either how well you ran the ball before that going into that play or how often you had been running the ball. There really wasn't a correlation. It's really based upon the 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 way that the defense is playing you and how well the quarterback is is able to to play right and how well they're able to execute there as opposed to the the threat of the run is more of a binary feature than it is something that affects the defense based upon the quality of of the player that they believe they're going up against so i also looked at this numbers in in a different fashion i looked at a bunch of different rookie quarterbacks going back to 2015 and i plotted their team rushing success rank. And I'm using a rush success as a play where they have positive EPA on the play, positive expected points added on a rushing play. Uh, so what percentage of the time did that happen? And then I ranked that through, through the NFL for, the, for every single year for these teams. And then I looked at the quarterbacks and I said on an EPA per play basis, so their, their individual efficiency, um, I'm going to use that as a proxy for their success as rookies so I plot the two against each other. And what you find is basically no relationship, at least when you get to rushing success ranks, whether you're at the top, you have a very, very hot offense like Dak Prescott had when he was a rookie, a very successful offense, or when you get into the mid-20s, that sort of area, the bottom third tier, you've also had very, very successful Rookie quarterbacks like Deshaun Watson had that outstanding season, shortened but outstanding season. Justin Herbert, he had had a very poor rushing success. It was, I think it was 28th in the NFL. Um, but there is a dip right at the end where there does seem to be more of a correlation there, but that's primarily driven by the fact that Josh Rosen and Jared Goff had very, very poor rush offenses and they had historically poor efficiency as rookies. This is two of the worst rookie seasons we've you know ever seen came from those two guys, uh, Josh Rosen and Jared Goff. So I think the question really comes up there is, is when we're looking at these correlations is, is it the lack of the running game that was causing Josh Rosen and Jared Goff to be so poor? Is that the reason they weren't successful? Would it would they've had a floor on their performance, a much higher floor in their performance if they had a better running game? Or was it the fact that those guys were so bad and the passing game was so bad that the complete bottom fell out of the offense and it's nearly impossible to do anything effectively if you have that bad of, of a passing offense? I think it's probably more likely the latter than it is than it is the former in that situation. And again, when we go through the top, so I'm going to go through the top quarterbacks in EPA per play as rookies since 2015. And I'm going to give you then what their success, what the team success rate was in rushing the ball. 
So number one was Dak Prescott in 2016 and the Cowboys were fourth. So that, that lends to the theory that running could have helped. At least there's a correlation there. Uh, number two is Deshaun Watson, 21st. Number three, Justin Herbert, 29th. The rushing game was 29th there. Not good at all. Really no correlation there. Uh, number four, Jameis Winston. He had number one in rush, rushing success rank. I didn't realize. I kind of Maybe I can't even remember back to 2015 that the Bucks were that good um, at running the ball. So that falls in. Baker Mayfield's next. He had the 22nd best rushing success rate. Joe Burrow, 20th. Marcus Mariota, 25th. And as you can see, other than Prescott and Winston, who were right near the top, all these other guys were in the 20s, sometimes in the late 20s. So the correlation is very weak, if anything, there. And I just think when you have articles which are stating that the key to success for Zach Wilson is going to be how well and effectively they run the ball. It's just an overstatement of what the reality is. And we, you know, it's just like something that we need to stop doing is really equating those two things together, especially when we know the inverse correlation there. And the fact that great offenses, great passing offenses in particular open up the running game more than vice versa. So uh, I will say to Rich, although I enjoy your work, I appreciate the fact that you have been holding down the fort when it comes to Jets coverage for a while now that unfortunately at this point in time, until further notice, you are in fact canceled. Sorry, you're canceled. Okay, now that we're done with our cancellation for the day, I want to talk a little bit about other PFF podcasts that we have here. Now, I know you, if you enjoy this podcast, you enjoy numbers, you enjoy evidence-based analysis, and that's what we have across the spectrum. We have the Fantasy Football Podcast with Ian Harditz, where you're going to get that hard look at metrics that we have at PFF that PFF doesn't have any, that no one has anywhere else in order to look at the fantasy football season. You have the two for one drafts podcast with Mike Renner and Austin Gale. You have the PFF forecast with my, my guys, George Shahuri and, um, and Eric eager, where they are looking at everything, not only from a betting angle, but from an analytics angle. And of course we have the main NFL pod with Sam and Steve, and we have the Chris Collinsworth podcast, which had a lot of, I mean, just fantastic guests that have been on there. So I think everyone should go ahead and check those out. And number two, you need to check out the 2021 PFF best ball draft kit tiered ranking projections, including my own to targetable stacks, to favorable matchups, to suggestions for how to play out of each particular draft slot. If you're doing any best ball drafting this off season, I think it's a great way to expedite your, even your research process. Cause there's nothing like getting some whole cold, hard cash down to figure out exactly who you like and who you don't like and uh, how you want to arrange different players on your board. Okay. Let's jump into quarterback rankings. So these are, I'm gonna call these the analytical quarterback rankings here. And just to quickly go into a little bit of process here, I don't want to over overplay this. If anyone's seen the work I've done with Bayesian uh, updating, this is what this is used in this process. So here's, here's what happens. If you know the range of outcomes generally for quarterback skill, so I'm for this, I'm using franchise quarterbacks and their EPA per dropback for efficiency or their grade per dropback, their PFF grade per dropback 
for, for the grading side. So you look at both of those things, you have a range for over their careers, you get a, a basically a range of how much NFL quarterbacks vary and how good they are. So there's that. Then if you have a range on a per throw basis, how much it varies, you have that, you have the standard deviation of that. If you have those two numbers, you can combine those. And then you can also use on a throw by throw basis, what happens on a throw by throw basis. And you can update your assumptions going through the entire time. Now, the initial point that we're starting for, for all these different quarterbacks is based upon draft position. So it's not a huge, huge difference, but if you're a number one pick, my assumption is going to be in your career. If you're Joe Burrow, um, I'm going to give you a higher career assumption than I'm going to give quarterbacks who are drafted in the second or third round or Drew Locke or someone like that. Now, quickly, within a season or two, as evidence starts to pile up, those preconceived notions, what we call the prior, so what your, your assumption was before anything happened, as that's being updated, it quickly doesn't matter. It matters less and less as you're adding more and more evidence. And as you're adding more and more evidence, this this system that I have, it's also a good way to weigh past evidence with more recent evidence, which is weighed more heavily to give a full spectrum of someone's career. So we're not just constantly changing our opinions based upon recency bias. I talked about the QB MVP odds and why I liked Russell Wilson also on the show a couple of weeks ago. And a lot of it's just based upon recency bias, how, how quickly these guys are jumping around. So these rankings and these projections that I have for how well, how good we think players are on an EPA basis or on a grading basis, a lot of this just helps nail down that, that number. So let's go through some of these. And there are differences between grades where players are ranked by, by PFF passing grade and where players are ranked on EPA per dropback. So I'll talk through some of the individuals and some of the individual differences here, but just sort of broad picture, like why do those differences ha happen, right? There's a very, very strong correlation between the, between the two metrics, which makes sense. But I would say that each has its positive and each has its negative. Now I've looked at projecting quarterbacks forward where you're just looking at projecting their efficiency. And I found if you use about a weighting of about 50% grades, 50% past history projection on EPA, if you use those two projections about 50-50 each, you get a better projection of EPA or efficiency going forward than you do if you just use their past efficiency. So it does help to bring that in. You're measuring something different, which is helpful in conjunction. Now, I would say what grades do well is they are better at isolating. So they're better at looking specifically at the quarterback and not looking as much as EPA would be. If you throw, for instance, EPA, if you throw a screen pass out to someone, and they break three tackles and run it for a 50-yard touchdown, that's going to be treated by EPA the same as you threw a 45-yard pass down the field and hit someone in stride with a tight coverage on them, and they run in for a touchdown. Those two, those two plays are going to be treated exactly the same. Our grading will treat them differently. Our grading most often, and we grade from a negative two to positive two on every single play. We, we grade those, and that's what all rolls up um, and is standardized to get the zero to 100 uh, grades. So we would probably give a zero grade because they're just doing what they were supposed to do on a screen pass, as opposed to, like I said, that would be seen as a very, very great play by EPA. So that's what grades are good at. They're good at isolating the quarterback. What grades are not as good at 
is adjusting for context, for situation, and for what is more valuable than than what isn't. Now, some of that, you try to build some of that into the fact that you can say this play was a positive half a point. This play is positive, it was positive one point, 1.5. So there is some gradation there, but it's really going to treat throws equally plays equally, no matter when, no matter when they happen. And for EPA on the more important plays, you're going to get more credit for it. Uh, a conversion of, if you throw a, you know, a 12 yard dime in the middle of the field to convert a third and 11, that's a huge play by EPA. When you're looking at grading, that'll probably be graded the same as if you're doing that on a first and five, where it's probably a little bit easier to do, quite honestly. Um, so that there's, there's that, that's part of it. There is an aspect of scrambling and how effective and important scrambling is probably gets picked up a bit more by EPA. Um, there is an aspect of sacks. Sacks are highly, highly negative by EPA. They're much more negative plays than most people think, but in most people's collective opinions, uh, it's easy to place blame on the offensive line. Although we know with the mantra, the simplified mantra that sacks are a quarterback stat, quarterbacks control their own sack rate quite a bit by how long they hold the ball. And it's tough to decipher that. Uh, in fact, I looked through in past years for our PFF grades where I think it's somewhere around 60% of all sacks are just marked as zeros. So we're not giving it as a negative to the quarterback at all. And probably because it just looks bad when they're getting sacked, but you know, you have to be able to avoid some of those ones that even look like it could be the offensive's fault. And that's what EPA does a better job uh, sorting out is really figuring out. Yeah. We're going to just give everything to the quarterback on those plays because that is more right than only giving 40% of the, the negative to the quarterback. It's more right to do that. And again, situational play. If you throw an interception on third and 15, it's not really that negative of a play. Um, even if it looks really, really bad, but as, whereas an interception that looks really, really bad is going to be graded just as poorly, no matter whether it was on first and 10 or on third and 15, where it's less uh, costly. So those are the two things you can think of grading as more like grading the throws and how accurate, how good of a thrower someone is a lot of the time. And EPA is going to bring into the contextual, the decision-making, all the things that you can't really parse out and section up in your head. It's going to do a better job giving exact weightings for those. So I want you to think about that as I'm going through some of the players who have a disconnect between their grades and their, and their EPA. All right, so let, let's get down here. Uh, it shouldn't come as a shock that Patrick Mahomes is number one. He's number one in our in the Bayesian grading projection, he's number one in EPA. And he is so much higher than everyone else that it's really the difference between him and the second best projection that I have on here, which I'll get to in a second. The difference between those two is about equal to the difference between the second projection and getting all the way to a bottom third quarterback. <laughs> like that's, that's how big of the difference is. And that's why when I mentioned on the MVP odds that Patrick Mahomes MVP odds being lower this year than they were last year. I think it's plus 450 or plus 500 at some places. doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, the guy's a stud, the guy's the best. Uh, and he's really that much better. He's been that much more consistent. There's just nothing negative about what he's done. If you look through from, from his first drop back to his last drop back, it's just been high level, high quality performance the entire time. Now you could say that maybe you have to adjust that down because of 
the players that he's playing with and so on and so forth. And I think we do a bit of that. We grade him a little bit more harshly than how EPA looks at, looks at him. Um, but he's still number one by grading too, um, for what we would have for our projection going forward. Number two is Deshaun Watson. Now he's, he's, he's number two in grading and two in EPA and, you know, I'm no legal scholar, but not looking so hot for, for Deshaun right now and his ability to play this year. So the de facto number two, if you assume Wash, uh, uh, Deshaun Watson is off the board, is Russell Wilson, still Russell Wilson. And this goes back to my point in that MVP episode a couple of weeks ago that we're treating Russell Wilson like he's QB6 or something like that in in how he's being viewed now. Last year, he was seen as a 1B to Mahomes' 1A by a lot of different measures. He was the overwhelming favorite to win the MVP about eight, nine weeks into the season before falling off. And now we have him at plus 1600, you know, tied with guys who are lower than guys like Matthew Stafford. Uh, it seems quite a bit low, but he is someone who has this disconnect with grades and EPA. And for him, it's pretty easy to figure that out. I mean, he's, he's third in our, in the grading projection, as far as how good he is by PFF grades, he's eighth by EPA. So a lot of other guys are still ahead of him, like Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady, Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, all those guys have better EPA projections than Russell Wilson. And for Wilson, it's really primarily about the sacks. He takes a ton of sacks. He's always taken a ton of sacks. Those are highly, highly negative. They don't affect his grading nearly as much as they affect EPA. And if you look at the type of throws that he makes, he makes these really, really high-end throws, right? No one's a better thrower of the ball than Russell Wilson is, um, but he doesn't take a lot of easy throws, meaning he's not as good at hitting guys in the middle of the field, uh, getting, you know, generating a ton of yards after catch. He's really good at throwing the ball over the shoulder down the field, which are really, really hard throws. Um, so the way that he generates his EPA, he does it in a harder fashion, which I think comes through in the grading as being a positive because we grade those those big, those big time throws, but he has a lot of big time throws and that really helps boost up his grading quite a bit too. So I would say that the way you should view Russell Wilson, probably not as high as his grading, um, but the EPA misses out on some of the high end play that Wilson has. And the fact he's had poor offensive lines and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think third is fair for him. Although I can see some other guys being in, in the conversation next on the, on the rankings here. And this is something that, is going to you know, not make everyone happy uh, is Lamar Jackson. Now what's interesting about this is the, this is pass grade per drop back and EPA per drop back. So I'm not even a court incorporating the rushing stuff. The rushing stuff for grading is kind of hard to incorporate because the grading does a, it doesn't do the greatest job of weighting that stuff. Um, but he's sixth on grading. So he doesn't come in fourth, even though he's fourth overall, but he's third in EPA because, you know, we still got to go back to that 2019 season. It was so, so, so good. Um, he had limited dropbacks in a somewhat difficult year that he had in, well, not difficult, but he didn't have a great year. It was, it was efficient, but not, not great as a rookie in 2018. He had a tremendous year, obviously in 20, 2019, winning the unanimous MVP. And then he was pretty good in 2020 also relative. Um, so his EPA, so that's why he has that third ranked EPA and he's right there. 
Uh, but very close, very, very close to him is our next guy who is Aaron Rodgers. And what's interesting about that is Rodgers is second in the MVP odds the last time I checked behind Patrick Mahomes. And here we have Rodgers as one, two, three, four, fifth. Now you, you knock Deshaun Watson out of there and that makes him fourth. So there's a little bit of disconnect uh, going on there. Rodgers is fifth in grading, fourth in EPA. I mean, last season was just awesome across the board. But if you saw in some of the previous seasons before that, he struggled from an efficiency basis, um, especially, especially from an EPA basis, but a little bit from a grading basis, but much more from an EPA basis. He struggled in 2015, in 2017, 2018, 2019. All those were bad. Uh, he had an okay year in 2016, but his grading didn't suffer nearly as much. And I think it was a similar phenomenon to Russell Wilson, where amazing, amazing big time throws, too many sacks. He didn't take sacks last season, which was surprising. Um, too many sacks and other plays where he wasn't, he was hopping around, waiting around, waiting around too far for, and he wasn't, when he was taking some of those sacks, he was probably getting too much of the benefit of the doubt that they weren't his fault where they really were his fault. Um, okay. The most controversial guy that we're going to have up here. And one of the reasons why, <laughs> I don't know if I put an article about this, I think uh, I probably get up getting killed is the PFF bias towards our man, Baker Mayfield. Now Baker Mayfield here is ahead of Tom Brady, ahead of Justin Herbert, ahead of Josh Allen, ahead of a lot of these guys. So he falls right after Rogers as being number six. He also has this thing where his, by grades, he's number four. But by EPA, he's 14. So our grading just loves Baker Mayfield. Um, I think he's been fairly accurate. I think he is, hmm, I mean, especially as a rookie, he had a lot of incredible downfield throws. He struggled a lot in 2019. And then he came back and, you know, he had that perception hit that went along with a lot of bad weather games there. But he really finished quite strong as far as how he, how he finished out the season. And if you look at, okay, let's go back to, let's go to 2020 here. If you look at where he ended up finishing out, I mean, he finished 10th in, in passing grade last year. So, you know, not, not too bad at all. Um, he struggled in 2019. He was down at 17th, but again, you know, you're kind of, you're not at the, you're not at the bottom, bottom, bottom there. Right. And then he was 10th in 2018. So, because he's been consistently in or around that top 10 sort of range that really helps him vis-a-vis a lot of these, a lot of these other guys. Um, and he gets a little bit of a discount for the fact that he performed well as a rookie where most guys struggle. He, again, for MVP odds, he's all the way down at 11th in MVP odds. Um, so maybe there's something there for Baker, but he's going to have to get some volume that he didn't have last year. Okay. Next is Tom Brady. I don't know. I really discuss it too much here. There's no aging adjustment here. Uh, so Tom Brady, Matt Ryan, Brady's not higher because he struggled the two years prior to last season. And he wasn't really that great by EPA, honestly, last year, he was pretty good by, by, uh, by our passing grades. In fact, by our passing grades, he was, you know, second, if you, if you incorporate just the regular season. Um, and what else do we have here? So if we go a bit further, I'm trying to figure out. So here, here's, here's the ones you, you're not going to. So people are going to unequivocal with is this next three in ranked order. So it's Ryan Tannehill, Justin Herbert, Josh Allen. People are not going to like Ryan Tannehill. He's got a little bit of a disconnect between grades and EPA. He's more of a grading guy. He's always been a lot of a grading guy. I looked back to see if anyone ever had the big of a disconnect as Baker Mayfield in the past. And Ryan Tannehill was one of those guys where even early in his career, 
where he was about, you know, average-ish, slightly below average in efficiency, he was grading pretty well for us. And now that's gone way, way up. If you look at him, he's been, you know, top seven last year in grades. Um, if you go back to the year before, let me drop the minimum dropbacks because he didn't, he was number one, um, but not on high volume. He was number one in passing grades in 2019. And he's been really good, really efficient. He just hasn't gotten into any sort of MVP conversation. I mean, maybe if they have some sort of blow up year with Julio Jones there and all that stuff, he could be interesting. Uh, I probably have to update this, but as of the, when I was looking before, he was like a 40 to one sort of guy that that might've updated though. So that's there. Herbert, he is, his grading wasn't quite as good as his EPA numbers. EPA numbers is really high just because you don't, don't expect a rookie to step in like that and be able to play that efficiently. His grading is also is going to be interesting going forward because he did so well under pressure. And that's something that is highly uh, noisy. So we'll see if that sticks there. And then next is Josh Allen. Now I know, okay, let me just address the Allen thing because Allen's third in MVP voting is probably considered by most people to be a top five type of quarterback. And here he is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11th. So 11th may seem way, way too low for Allen, but you have to think about it from the fact that if we were looking at this thing before last season, you know, he was in EPA or by grading, he was just never getting out of the 20s sort of area. So he would have been very low. He would have been in the well into the 20s, maybe 25th, 26th, 27th after his first two seasons in the league. So he's jumped all the way up to 11. That's a big jump. It's still weighing one outstanding season versus two poor seasons. So if you want to just say, He's at a new plateau now after 2020, and that's what we expect going forward. That could be a little bit dangerous. Uh, we've seen other guys jump up in the past. Some of them continue on, some of them maintain, some of them don't. Uh, I think this is probably underrating him, saying he's 11th here and below a lot of other guys. But I don't think, but I would say that where the reality lies closer to this than it lies to third best quarterback in the NFL, like maybe those MVP odds are pointing towards. Now, if he, if he adds more evidence this year and he, and he, that will start to overwhelm the poor evidence from his first two seasons and he'll, he'll rapidly move up into that top five by these projections. So going even further down, Kirk cousins is next. Uh, Dak Prescott is next after that. Now, now people are not going to like the Dak thing. Dak is a little bit of a disconnect there where the grading has been a lot worse than the EPA. And I think even last year, people thought that he was having this awesome, awesome year because he had some eye-popping stats from a from just an absolute status because they were throwing the ball a billion times a week. But if we go to the grading, you know, he was, even if you lower, he was 11th in grading last year, lower than... Um, lower than Baker Mayfield, you know, got lower than Derek Carr, lower than Ryan Tannehill. So all these are Matt Ryan, lower than Matt Ryan. So people probably didn't really see that as being true. And let, let me just look up some of the, let me look up his efficiency last year. Again, he didn't really throw the ball enough to have a huge effect. Let me lower the play count on here. And let's see where he was as far as his EPA last year where Dak was because again I think this is something where we didn't really realize how poor his EPA was uh let's see Prescott so 
he was 15th in EPA per play, right? Um, actually, let's go to unadjusted EPA per play because that's even a better metric of, of what exactly I'm looking at. 17th, okay? So again, we thought he was good. A lot of people thought he was good last year. He wasn't that good. He was worse again than Carr, than Lamar Jackson, than Kirk Cousins, than Drew Brees, Baker Mayfield, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, even with his limited time when he played last year, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, below all those guys. So maybe we're a little bit too hyped on Dak right now for the fact that he is eighth, it looks like, in MVP odds, only slightly below someone like Russell Wilson. Uh, going further down, like Cousins being above Dak, that's something that's somewhat interesting. Stafford. Stafford's a guy, MVP, he is up there. He's fifth in MVP odds. He's down here in the teens. And, you know, maybe this change of scenery will really be something good for him, but the projection is not that, that great. It's kind of interesting next that we have Jimmy Garoppolo and Derek Carr and the fact that those guys are above Kyler Murray is probably going to be something that everyone's going to look at, like what is going on here um, for Garoppolo. He's really being carried by his EPA. His grades aren't that great. You could say maybe that's a scheme thing that ends up pumping up his EPA versus how well he actually throws the ball. But the thing with Kyler is again, this doesn't account for rushing. So obviously you're going to put Kyler above these guys when it comes to rushing. Um, if you look at the MVP analysis, Kyler is ninth in MVP odds right below Dak. And his problem is he just hasn't been as good as some people think when we're looking purely at the efficiency and the, the grading numbers. I mean, he was his rookie year. He was 20th in EPA per play. He was 17th in EPA per play last season. So he moved up, but still you haven't cracked the top half of the league. And then if you look at his PFF passing grade, uh, he was 14th. He was 25th in, in passing grade as a rookie. He was 14th, so barely cracking the, the top of the league there last season. So you combine all that together, you're just not getting a lot of encouraging stuff out of Kyler. Maybe they can take a jump this year. You'd hope for that second-year leap. Maybe there can be a Josh Allen-like third-year leap. But I do think there's reason to be concerned about Kyler going forward if he can't generate the rushing. And he was able to do that in a safe manner last season until midway through the season against the Seahawks. He injured his shoulder and things kind of fell off the, the cliff a little bit for Kyler there. And if you go down the rest of the things here, we say we have Ryan, you know, Roth, we have Joe Burrow finally after that. So Burrow didn't have that efficient of rookie season, although I think he looked pretty good. He's 17th in grading. So there's a lot of upside for him this year. If, if he can, if he can play well, he'll move up quickly because of the fact that he's a, that he doesn't have that much of a career history, but guys like Tua is really, really far down here. I think that's a reason why they could have looked to draft a quarterback. Hertz is really, really far down. Sam Darnold is dead last. And I think for Darnold, yeah, you're really going to have to hope on the change of scenery here. Cause he just has been bad every single season that he's been in the league. And it's tough to say when or how, that is going to end up turning around. So maybe I'll write these up in an article and take the grief from, from Bill's Mafia. But I think this is a good way of looking at having a solid analytical system that incorporates recent history, proportionally weights it against past history, and looks from a grading and an EPA perspective to get two different takes on these guys and then builds a composite score for, for how we're looking at them. Uh, Russell Wilson probably is a little bit better than what some people are thinking now. Baker Mayfield, maybe slightly better. Josh Allen, good, but not quite elite yet, I'd say, are, are the big headline takeaways here. And Kyler Murray, 
you know, not even really in the good category yet. Um, so we're going to have to really, we're going to see this is, this is closer to a make or break type of year for Kyler Murray than what some may be thinking right at this moment. Okay, let's get into our next ad that is for Western and Southern in these uncertain times. Life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? You got a house, you got kids, uh, you have a spouse, you probably want to start thinking about these things. Uh, but however these difficult questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them backed by over 130 years of experience. Together, we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, so the last segment that I'm going to go into here, and I'm cheating a little bit here because I'm going to call this my, my stick to sports segment, but it's not, it, it's somewhat related to, to, to sports. So anyway, this will be the stick to sports segment. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Okay. So what happened was recently I was listening to a podcast as I want to do. And it was talking about the way we view certain talents and traits versus others and maybe not doing that correctly. And it reminded me of a really interesting and kind of perspective-changing podcast that I listened to where uh, I'm a tennis fan. I used to be a bigger tennis fan than I am now. So this podcast is called No Challenges Podcast with Ben Rothenberg. And it was a really interesting one where he was talking with uh, Nick Kyrgios, and he is a Australian, I want to say. I don't think he's New Zealand. Australian tennis player, but he's from Greek ancestry. And he's one of these guys who speaks his mind. He smashes rackets. He does other things like that. But it was good because he's really speaking open and honestly. And his thing is that he doesn't practice hard. He doesn't, he doesn't really try very, very, very hard, honestly. And when he was talking about that, he was being asked about what happened with this tournament that he won and how things ended up coming together and why can't he just play like that all the time. And he had a really interesting response that I want to play for you guys now because it changed the way, the framing, the way that I think about some of these things. Um, and let me just play for you his his response to playing well in this tournament and his ability or lack thereof to maintain that type of play in the future. No chance. No, I mean, I, I just... I feel like actually like I respect the guys who go out there every day and just like yeah, do their best and yeah. grind. Like it's actually I think that's a talent in itself to just show up every day and be like the best yeah. tennis player you can be. Like that's if I had that, Jesus, I'd probably have a couple grand slams already, but but that's uh I don't think I just don't think that's my personality. Like I just don't think I'll be ever be like that. Yeah. Now I, I how well you could hear that or not, I'm not sure. But he basically said that he wishes in a way that he could get out there and grind and play like that. He'd probably have a couple of grand slams, which are the you know, the elite four tournaments per year in tennis, if he could do that. But specifically the fact that he called it a talent to do that. Hearing that really affected my thinking because often when players or 
I don't know, just anyone, you, your spouse, your kids, when we think about effort, when we think about things that are more influenceable than others, when we think about these things, like we think that a person not living up to a certain standard it's basically like it's their fault. We don't think of them in the same way as we think of a player who is just not fast enough, just not quick enough. Like the, if you say, well, the guy's just not quick enough. What are you going to do? He's still a grinder. He's still, he's, he, he has grit. He's, you know, trying very hard. And there's somehow this like moral superiority to the fact of someone trying really hard versus someone who's just quick versus someone who isn't. But the reality is much closer to, trying very hard or having the ability to maintain that and continue that and have that drive really being a talent, really being an innate sort of thing, much more than we think. And I think that's important when we're now looking at sports, because how we view a certain player, let's say in the draft process, you could say, well, this guy is a supreme athlete. He's, he's very, very talented. And why are we saying that? We're saying that because they're fast, they're quick, they can do all these sort of things. You have, you have certain things which can't be affected at all, right, by the outside, like how tall you are. You have other things that have a smaller effect by, by, what, by what can be trained, like speed. Obviously, you can get faster by, by training and working out, but it's, there is more of an inherability in that. But when you think about hard work, I think often you can view players and you say, hey, you put them in the right situation, you put them with the right coaching, you put them with the right whatever, will then raise up that effort level, will raise up that sustainability and will turn them into this player thinking that it's more affectable, more mutable than it really is. The reality is there's a larger range for these types of traits, like effort, like improvement. Um, there's a larger range but the ranges are as solid as they are for speed. Now, this, the, the ranges for speed is smaller, so you can only adjust it so far. But that, there's a solid range for every person, just like there's a solid range when it comes to effort and these other things for people. Um, and I think a good, a good illustration of that is if you've ever seen studies that have been done on twins who were separated at birth. It's kind of the perfect study for trying to separate genetics, you know, nature, quote unquote nature versus surroundings or nurture. So your nurture versus nature debates, your surroundings versus your genetics. And there's been tons of studies done on twins who are adopted and they're separated into, into different families. And what you end up finding out is in a lot of different categories, um, even things like you wouldn't suspect, like like body mass index. Okay. So they looked at body mass index between these twins. So Twins that grow up together in the same household have about a 0.7 coefficient of correlation between their BMIs. Twins that were separated at birth grew up in completely different households, okay? So you could, you, one, one household could be, we're eating vegetarian food all the time. The other household could be, we're going to the dollar menu at Wendy's all the time. Completely separated. And they look through all these different twins that are separated. Not, not everyone's going to be in that diverse of a, of a circumstance. But anyway, they look at the twins that are separated. And the correlation of coefficient with their BMI was also 0.7. There was no difference as to whether or not they were raised in the same household or not. And that has ended up holding that 0.7, that about 70% of the explanation being a genetic thing. That has ended up holding across a number of measures like IQ, 
Um, it's even about 0.5 for, rel for religiosity, if you believe that. You would think that would be something that would be extremely tied to the household and the surroundings that you're in. But it's not as much as we think. A lot of these things are much more genetic. And I think the reason we always underestimate that and the reason we like to underestimate how much it's really just built into someone and it really is just a talent, how hard they can work is because we don't like to think of things being out of our control. And that comes into you know, how we view football and other things when we talk about momentum and, and the shift, we want to explain everything and we, we don't appreciate randomness. We have to also appreciate, which is in a way randomness, which is who we are as a, as, as a, as a person. And I think giving that up and saying, maybe we're under, we have less control to change these things while there is a disappointment in not being able to realize things that we think people should be able to realize and to have less ambition in that sort of way. I think there is more of an acceptance of who you are and working around those confines that could end up being better. And I think if you can identify players who are, who have a higher range of effort, let's say in a lower range of effort, figure out how, try to estimate where, what that range is, try to estimate where they have been, how they've been influenced. How do you get them into, into the higher range, but knowing that you can only go so far, knowing where they top out, like being able to think about these things as set ranges and set things that are closer to a talent like speed or quickness closer to something like that, we would get a better perspective on not only the player, but how to influence them and who they can end up being in the future. Um, but this is, like I said, it's been backed up by study after study before in the past. All right. That's it for me this week. Uh, I'm still trying to lock down an interview with, uh, different people who work in the front offices in analytics departments here for the rest of June. Hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll find that in your feed next week, if not the week after that, but I really appreciate everyone listening. I've gotten some good feedback on the solo pods here. If you have any additional feedback for me, hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF, or go ahead and drop a note in your favorite podcasting host site as a review. If not, uh, either way, I'll be talking at you next week. Thanks so much, everybody. Okay.